You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Greetings to Bakersfield, California. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hey, Glenn. Uh, so it's just been a couple minutes here. Uh, took a quick break uh, between recording the last one uh, and now this next one on the OJ case. It's funny, um, in the little break, I actually moved from upstairs at my desk to downstairs at the dining room table now that everyone on my end has gone to sleep. And you, last episode, we kind of had gone back and forth with, hey, that reminds me of this, and hey, that reminds me of this. Um, and uh, last episode, you mentioned how during the um, the car chase, uh, you and some friends were playing a collectible card game. Yes. So down here... At the, not, not Pokemon, No, not Pokemon. <laughs> down here on the dining room table, turns out my kids earlier today on summer break were playing Magic the Gathering, so... I go for them. <laughs> I see. I see mana tapped and uh, and creatures ready to attack. Uh. Yeah, which by the way, <laughs> I mean, back in ninety two, ninety three was when the game came out, so it was still pretty new yeah. when we were playing this. I mean, it was in their, I think their second expansion pack, so it was very, very new. We were just getting hooked on it, having no idea that this game would continue to go on and it'll be popular for 25 years but. well I, I actually remember that summer someone at the summer camp i was working at had actually brought some cards and they were trying to teach me how to how to play and and i was like trying to kind of get it and then they kind of just kicked my ass so um you know it was years later before i kind of got back into it but um yeah. speaking of kicking my ass when it wasn't good enough that you were already up by like 60 points in Words with Friends, you had to play another like 60-point word to go up by 120 points. I think I think yeah, I, pretty sure you got this one wrapped up. I, I like to get my 400 average per game. I, I'm always shooting for the four. After I get 400, then, I, <laughs> then I'll, I'll pull back. Oh, okay. Good to know. Uh, I, I logged in after we wrapped up that last episode and was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I knew I was going to lose it, already, but geez, rub it in. Uh, did you get any any folks because i do want to give a shout out i got a couple of invites so i want to give a shout out to uh uh becky and uh noberto Bert, yeah. out there yeah Bert, uh, Bert. Hit, hit me up too um so uh yeah it was good to see him um he was part of the crew that that you know invited penny and i for our, our first go round of the exclusionology class mm-hmm. at uh um the U.S. Postal Service Inspection Lab. Um, so, um, uh, you know, good to, uh, to you know, I know he's a big fan of the show and uh, hopefully get to see him at the conference here coming up. Yeah, that's cool. Say hi to him for me Absolutely. as well. I know I'm going back to the, the Army Crime Lab days. Yeah, yep. Oh, you know, speaking of which, I just a little aside here. Yeah. Um, you know, just the other day, I don't know if you had a chance to see Henry Swafford's presentation. He gave, a, I think it was sponsored through RTI, but it was a, an hour-long talk about the, the shift in language at the Army Crime Lab and the ramifications. Did you get a chance to see that? I, I didn't. Um, I have been in touch with him recently because, uh, well, um, you're going to kind of act as the, the moderator here <laughs> from from minnesota all the way to cincinnati but uh uh he's actually going to appear uh on the panel for the double loop podcast uh panel discussion um so we'll we'll have to work out any whatever details his agency needs uh, in order to to get that episode you know aired online but at least in person uh that should be a really interesting discussion um um and so kind of finalizing the last person but between him a uh, guy from, uh, I believe, uh, Illinois, and um, maybe another surprise guest. Um, we should have an interesting talk on conclusions and specifically the, uh, his his agency's new approach to uh, how they word their conclusions. 
Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I, watching the presentation, it was very interesting. And maybe I'll, I'll throw a couple of questions at him that his way, get his reaction to it. it just yeah. the, the comments of the attendees, that's what I found most fascinating. You know, while he's presenting, you know, there's an on, uh, ongoing yes. live, you know, text chat, if you will. They're commenting and, and chatting. And that was so fascinating interesting insightful into you know again uh yeah cedric and i presented those kinds of things for years but you know people are going to react a certain way to you but when you can just sit back and watch it happen to someone else and go well, that's probably what all those students were thinking or or saying during break or whatever you know you, you get a sense of wow it it is really difficult for people to wrap their head around going towards a probabilistic statement when the profession still firmly believes friction ridge impressions are unique and therefore because they are unique if you make an identification it's to a unique source uh, the profession still i think struggles to get past that 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 concept and although henry's first slide says here's the fallacy of uniqueness yes even if friction ridge skin is unique that doesn't you know doesn't address this other issue right. about how accurate we are in making these associations. They're, it, they're incomplete. You're trying to make an assessment under uncertainty. And even though he explained it very well for the next hour, <laughs> that's all you can see is people still going, but fingerprints are unique. Fingerprints are unique. No two fingerprints have been a found, found alike. So why are we even having this discussion? Okay. Well, <laughs> we have a, a long way to go. Yeah. Um well, it, it, hopefully it is, um, you know, fodder for a good discussion um, for our um, for our podcast episode at the conference. And, um, yep. uh, it, yeah, definitely looking forward to whatever kind of comments we get. Oh, and uh, should also make for an interesting um, business meeting. If any of y'all are going to the conference and you don't usually attend the business meeting, I highly recommend you attend the business meeting. Um there, there's going to be some discussion, and I think that you can kind of see it in the latest issue of the ID News that just came out. Um, that uh, the 2010-18 resolution, um, a kind of discussion on that last year was tabled, and it'll continue this year as to what to do with this. Uh, right now, the 2010-18 resolution says that uh, any kind of uh, use of a statistical model has to be approved by the IAI. The IAI is not really mm. in a position to do that, so the IAI is looking to move on to uh, something different uh, and mm. have something replace the 2010-18 resolution, as the 2010-18 resolution replaced the 1979 and 1980 resolutions that talked about... Um, well, you know, how examiners should testify. And yeah. um, so it should be interesting. Uh, and hopefully the recommendations that the probability uh, subcommittee uh, put out, uh, which, you know, I'm the chair of and Henry is also a member of, um, are, are kind of good uh, and broad enough to account for everybody uh, in the profession today and anything that they might be saying from the traditionalist individualization people to Henry to people like me that are saying inconclusive with similarities um, as a shortcut shorthand version of it. Um, that was the attempt anyway, but we'll see how the entire uh, association responds to all of that. It should be very interesting. So, OJ, right? Yes, back to, back OJ. to OJ. All right. So yeah, last time we left off with talking about some of some of the issues. So you know, uh, we had set up, at least from my perspective, what the number one bit of evidence was that says at a minimum he was there and good enough for me. I'm willing to accept that you know he was the murderer and and frankly probably acted alone. Um, but so then why why was he found not guilty? And that's you know, that's the question. If if all this evidence existed, then why was he found not guilty? Well, because the so, glove didn't fit, 
Go ahead. <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to pitch back to you. So, what do you think? If you were the, I mean, if, do you have a list, or do you at least have? If you were to pick a, a couple of things, what would you attribute to that moment or that thing that led to his acquittal? Well, and do you do you think, for example, the glove was a critical I, I mistake it, that affected the case? I, I think it was, but in in not in a straightforward way. Um, I think that with the climate that 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 existed in L.A. and, and this is this is kind of informed after seeing um, the documentaries and reading up more on like the jurors and stuff like that. Um, I, I think that there that he there he was he was never going to be convicted with the jury that they had at the time in the place that the the the. Uh, the trial was being held in that time and place, uh, kind of like you had right. alluded to last last uh, uh, last episode. All right, and and if for listeners, if they're not aware of the distinction, they had a they had their uh, in L.A. in L.A. County, they had different choices where they could have the trial, yeah. and a decision was made to have it downtown L.A. and they could have had it in Santa Monica, they could have had it in Simi Valley. Um, you know, out that way, and they chose to have it in downtown L.A., and a big part of that was because the Rodney King um, trial had been held out in the suburbs in Simi Valley, a predominantly all-white, you know, jury and all-white neighborhood. So they didn't want that same criticism. They they had so much evidence, they felt they couldn't lose this case, and so in their own right. naivete and perhaps arrogance, they thought, we've got so much, we can't lose. It doesn't matter where we have this trial, they're going to reach the same conclusion. It has to be him. And of course, hindsight being what it is, no, no, it completely mattered that it was now moved to downtown and had a different juror pool. But, okay, so. Well, and they, you know, the one of the other courthouses was like just down the street from where the murder happened. So it, it would have made sense to actually have it in that more predominantly. Santa Monica. Right, in the Santa yeah. Monica neighborhood as opposed to downtown because of where the crime occurred. Yeah. But in the, at least in the FX series, they kind of were like, well, Yes, you know, we could avoid criticism by having it downtown. Plus, this Santa Monica courthouse was damaged by a recent earthquake, so maybe it's not set up to to handle all of the uh, media that is going to totally descend on this thing. But, right. yes, um, I, I think that once the trial location was chosen and the jury was chosen, um, that... The die was cast. The die was cast. <laughs> And that the glove not fitting, you know, the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit kind of thing from Johnny Cochran and from that whole mess that happened with the glove was just the excuse that the, the, that's, you know, members of the jury were looking for to kind of justify their, uh, their vote for acquittal that it could have been anything, but this is what it ended up being. Um, yeah. And, and I would tie that into a little bit too that you know the glove had this shadow of suspicion over it um because mark Furman had found right. it and was at both scenes and so now the glove itself um you know be- became suspicious and you know we made some comments like this on the stephen avery series that and you know i'm sure we'll get into a little more here too right even if that didn't happen, even if that didn't happen, uh, any impropriety you know, stuff at the crime scene, it's it's hard now at this point, you know, to get rid of the um, the specter that that could have happened. Yeah. And once you have Mark Furman's testimony coming out talking about planting evidence and. Um, you know, his racism and, you know, the use of, you know, racial epithets and his hatred of black people. And, you know, at least how he appeared to have this hatred, you know, through his language and, and choice of words and then, his culture. And then pleading the fifth on the stand instead of saying anything about any of that. Well, yeah. And that that's probably the most shocking part of this is that 
you know, his testimony initially is so so clean and so well, it's so polished. I mean, and anyone can go on and look at his YouTube testimony as well. It's it's all out there. You can see he does a great job testifying. And then like in the drama, and, and that's, you know, I know the, the one you saw, it's this really unbelievable moment. And, you know, and I remember the phrase too, because it's what um, Cochran kept referring to, manna from heaven, that, you know, after... Furman testifies and it's nationally publicized and everyone's watching it and this woman in Tennessee sees the testimony huh. and you know he's asked this question you know have you ever you know used the n-word and any of this other stuff and I always was under the suspicion that defense probably had some character witnesses who are going to come in and say oh yeah at some point I heard him say this right. but it never would have had the same impact it always would have been like who would you dig up and you know this this person wants this 15 minutes of fame to come in and tarnish his character other than his word against a very polished seasoned professional looking and sounding you know detective but to have these tapes come to light and have and hear his own voice saying what he said. It's it's absolutely unbelievable. From from you know he's I think he's later has kind of come out and tried to explain it away as as he was like playing a character or trying to work out a screenplay or something like that. But <laughs> it, it it's it, it doesn't come across like that no. at all. No. And 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 just the 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 way. Yeah, the way he spoke was just <sighs> You know, it's it's growing up in inner city Detroit, it's how it's how cops I knew, it's how my friends' fathers, it's how people I knew, it's it's how people talked and it's how they felt and there you had this racial tension in these urban cities. I mean, it's just you know, there there was very and and obviously we have some issues today, but right. well, I mean, yes. certainly that that <laughs> kind of racism was just rampant in the well, as far as I remember, in the seventies and eighties in you know in these major cities, and and I think L.A. you know with obviously the Rodney King uh, you know, trial and then this other shooting, which a lot of people don't know too much about it, but the Latasha Harlan's shooting, which was this fifteen-year-old black girl, um, I think in Watts or Compton or something like that. Uh, goes into a Korean grocery store, gets into an altercation with the Korean store owner, and the Korean store owner um, basically she thought the the store owner thought the girl was stealing, like her and her friends. You know, there's some altercation that happens on the video, and as the girl's walking away, the store owner pulls out a gun and just shoots the 15 year old girl in the back of the head, and you just see her in the video just go down. And this happened um, <sighs> right around the time of Rodney King. And so when this woman goes up for her trial, the grocery store owner, she gets, and I'm not kidding, she gets a $500 fine and five years probation for, for murdering this girl. And the black community is just outraged. Oh, and, yeah. And, they, and they, they riot over that. So you've got the Rodney King and the Harlan's case, both of these things, plus just, you know, history of, of right. other racial issues. And so to them... You know, and and it comes out in I think in the drama you watched as well as the thirty, uh, you know, thirty for thirty documentary. It is clear that yes, like you said, it didn't matter. Uh, they were going to acquit OJ. They were going to make sure that essentially it was payback. I mean, payback right. for these things, for these atrocities that had been committed against them, they weren't going to convict OJ. And all these things, and to me, it was always the tipping point. Furman's, Furman's te his impeachment. And like you said, when he has to go back on the stand, and now every question he's asked, he says, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. Right. And at this point, at this point, there is no way the jurors can trust a single single thing. And Barry Sheck, you know, says, don't think about or worry about this piece of evidence or this piece of evidence. If one could have been planted, then any of them could have been planted. If one is corrupt, then all of them could be corrupt. You can't pick and choose. You have to just assume that any level of corruption could have occurred. And I think it was very compelling, you know, in those arguments. Yeah. And, 
And, and obviously, um, it worked for the jury. You know, in the yeah. FX documentary or not documentary uh, dramatization, um, they actually kind of do a good job of that, where where they take um, Marsha Clark and um, uh, Chris. What's the Darden? Darden. Uh, they take like kind of a a weekend where Chris yeah. Darden is like, "Hey, let's get get out of town. I have to go to like this wedding up, you know, Northern California. Just kind of you know tag along, and um, you know just get out of the city. Um, you know, I guess like you know your kids are taken care of, and you know just just relax. And um, uh, so Marsha Clark is in the bar with Chris Darden and uh, a bunch of his friends who are all African American. And it, the conversation eventually turns to this topic of of planting evidence, and you know one of his friends kind of says, you know, I don't believe it because you know it's planted by the L.A. cops. And she goes on this this like perfect you know kind of tirade, not not tirade, but perfect explanation of okay, seriously. So what you're saying is that you know these cops or this cop did this and this and this and this without knowing this or that like perfectly explaining how they would have there's no way they could have known all of this stuff to plant this evidence in just the right way where it couldn't have been you know they couldn't have been found out and it reminded me of like the you know our 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 conversation about uh Stephen Avery of yes of you know if they would have done this you know yep. there's no way they could have known that this was the evidence that would eventually come out and and actually backed up their story instead of completely ruining their story and exposing them as uh you know as planting illegal evidence and, and you know sending them to jail for for doing all this stuff um and in this yep, in the I, dramatization 100%. it was the guy was like oh it was like this moment of Oh, you're right. He really is guilty, and and you know, even with uh, the 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 problems that existed in LAPD at the time, there's just no way they could have known to do this in this way to plant all this evidence in just this way in the timeline that they had and in the knowledge that they had at the time. Yep, that's and in fact, when we were talking about the Stephen Avery case, that's exactly what I had in my head, and why we kept making these references back to it because it, it was it's my same argument with that. They're not the first persons on the scene. They don't know what's been recorded. They don't know what's been documented. Right. They don't know the alibis yet or the interview. They don't have any of that information. And to tamper with the scene is really, really dangerous because you don't – I mean it's just – it's so risky. And why risk it when you have all this this evidence? And and that actually the, – the scene you're referring to when they go up to Oakland, that actually is my favorite scene in the entire <laughs> dramatization. That and the jurors. Yeah. Because – I, I agree. The, the portrayal of Marsha Clark's argument, which I've heard her say this before in her run through this, it when when you listen to that part, you go absolutely. Even even if there is an outside chance, which it still seems pretty small. No, no, it just it doesn't doesn't make any sense to have done that. You could have jeopardized the entire case. And and the the one that keeps coming back to is. And and Furman had no idea if OJ had an alibi. He could have been at a show. He could right. have been somewhere from 6 p.m. to midnight. And so when he shows up at OJ's place on Bundy, he has no idea what OJ's alibi could or could not be. Um, and that would have been rather risky to have planted all that evidence. Well, and it, it, you know, he didn't know that that uh, Cato Kalin was going to. Uh, say, you know, say that he heard noises outside of his window. Uh, right. He he found the glove outside of Cato Kalin's window before Cato Kalin said he heard noises outside that window. Um, it it it's, it seems to fit together better that OJ right. did it all than that uh, the LAPD right. planted it all. <laughs> right. That they that they're. I think people give government way too much credit <laughs> for being that smart and organized. Right. Uh, it's just s simply not the case. And I, I just I, – I love that part of it because it just lays out how how ridiculous 
and far-fetched it would have been for them to have planted all of those things. They got a perfect mixture of both victims' blood to get that in the glove and in the certain places at the scene. Now, could there have been a contamination, cross-contamination due to poor handling of things or contact? Yeah, that could have happened, but to the extent that everything was ruined, no, probably not. But then you go back to Barry Sheck's point, you know, if, if one thing is bad, then, you know, his argument is, well, you can't trust any of it. That's probably a bit far-fetched, but that's the argument that's being made. And you can begin to see how the jurors, you know, go in this direction. Now, one of the questions that, well, two two questions. I mean, I watched uh, at least the 30 for 30 with my wife and she had, she had two questions. You know, the first was why would Mark Furman lie about never having said those things on the stand when he's under oath and everybody's watching? And my reaction to that is, mm, hold on here. There had never been anything like this before. There there hadn't ever been testimony where everybody was watching. And you have two choices at that moment on the stand. <laughs> Do you lie and hope that there isn't anything out there or, you know, even even if he knew that those tapes existed person in Tennessee is halfway around the country, you know, on the other side of the country, what's the chance they're going to be watching at this exact moment and go, hey, I've got some tapes. And there wasn't the internet back then. There wasn't the access to information. So, yeah, or you just come out and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've said those things. And then it opens up a whole... So why he lied and said that, knowing that those tapes, you know, if he even knew those existed, yeah, that makes complete sense. I, I don't think anyone would have guessed that the way things come back to haunt you today, it just didn't exist back then. This was the beginning of that. <laughs> right. Uh, and the other question is, well, okay, so he gets asked all these questions. And again, it's another great moment in the case. They get asked all these questions about, did you do this? Did you do that? And he pleads a fifth, he pleads a fifth, he pleads a fifth. And the prosecution starts objecting. And they basically say, look, he's just going to plead the fifth to everything. You just keep asking these questions. Now we're not getting anywhere. Can we just stop the questions? Please, God, stop the and, questions. <laughs> right. And, yeah. And, you know, Marsha Clark is horrified and all these all these issues. But they have this little sidebar. And, and you know, the judge is like, yeah, okay, we're going to end, end this. And then defense goes, hold on, we just have one more question. Yeah. And the judge could have said, no, we're done. He's not going to answer it. We're done. But they allowed the one more question. And of course, the the next question he asks is the most important question. Did you plant the evidence in this case? Did you plant these gloves? Did you do this? And a lot of people say, well, yeah, he was pleading. He could have just said no to that one. He pleaded the fifth to everything. Why didn't he just say no to that one? And to me, the moment he says, I plead the fifth, even me watching, I mean, at that time, I went, oh, oh my, oh, holy, wow, okay. Well, yeah. um, if you're that, the jury, because, yeah. yeah. And in the 30 for 30, one of the jurors at the interview go, yes, that's the moment we went, okay, this could all be fabricated. This is the L.A. police doing this to, to O.J. It's very possible now. In other words, her comment was, that's when reasonable doubt was presented to us. Yeah. That one question him saying, I plead the fifth. And so they ask him about that in the 30 for 30. Why, why didn't you, why didn't you just say no to that one? And his answer was my attorney. My attorney instructed me, if you say anything to any of them, then, then it just opens, oh, you'll pick and choose which ones you'll say. And it casts suspicion over all of them. You have to say, I plead the fifth to all of them. And he looked, and he kind of did the sheepish, you know, in retrospect, should I have said no? Yeah, I probably should have said no to that one, but I was just following my attorney's instructions, doing what was best for me. Yeah. I went, oh, okay, that's, I'd never heard that before. That was the first time that had been brought to light. And they even had this other cop who was one of the crime scene cops at the same time, who was inter- being interviewed separately. You could tell he's still angry. Like he still, he also pinpointed that moment as that's when we lost the case. Right. Mark should have said, no, damn it, no, I didn't plant that glove. I didn't plant any evidence at that scene. He could have said no, you know, he could have said I plead the fifth on everything else, but he should have said no to that one. And you could tell that there was this anger that the case was lost because of Mark Furman on that question. And I actually, given what the jurors said in my reaction, I kind of agree that's it. 
to me, that was the moment the case was lost. And I agree, it wasn't the, the glove that didn't fit that was bad strategy and all the other things that happened in the case. But knowing the situation in L.A., the choice to move it to downtown in that environment, the jurors that you had, the die was cast, the, the case is lost when he does not say, I didn't plant that. It really was even in the in the um, in the dramatization. It really did strike out as as this moment of man, w- what could have happened? Yeah, right, right, and 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 <laughs> the shock and bewilderment of everyone. I mean, the media went into this frenzy the ni- that night after you know the trial. Just it had it's. No case, no case in our history has all of this drama and all of these things coming out. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, the, the dramatization also pointed out, you, you don't see this very often, but, you know, that as it points out, it wasn't the only thing on those tapes were his racist comments. He had also made derogatory statements about the judge's wife. And that's yes. just, it's unbelievable. I mean, of all well, things come to light, there's several minutes of him talking about the judge's wife. <laughs> Well, and that was the thing is is that was one of these big things that 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 came out in, in in the dramatization as well is that there's this moment where the judge, okay, so the judge's wife, if if you haven't paid it, you know, watched any of this stuff, was a like sergeant or supervisor of some sort in the LAPD. Um, yeah. So Mrs. Ito was is actually, uh, you know, um, one basically the most senior ranking. Uh, female in the LAPD and she had had uh, um, an incident before with Mark Furman where she had to like seriously discipline him and there's this moment when uh, Lancito is basically you know hey here's your chance to be the judge in the most famous case of all time and he has his wife come in look over the witness list and sign off that there's no conflict between her and anyone on the witness list. And she, in the dramatization, she pauses when she sees Mark Furman's name and then signs it, thinking, who's going to yeah, know? And, well, or, or that's just part of my job. There's no conflict there. I don't have a conflict of interest with anyone I, I work with. I mean, you know, I, I could get that interpretation that... right. You know, I, yeah, I know some of these people because they're all detectives and they all work for the same agency I do. But just because I discipline them, that's not a conflict of interest. That's a normal function of working. In, you know, so, I mean, I, you're right. I mean, they make this dramatic pause and whether or not, you know, who knows if that happened right. or not. But I, was it poor, poor oversight? Who, who knows? Who could have ever guessed that these tapes would come to light <laughs> and buried in the middle of them would be these comments? I mean, who yeah. could have ever guessed? And, and that was, a, I mean, who knows how differently the trial would have gone with a different judge. Um, mm-hmm. But so, um, you know, we've talked about before. So let's, let's actually uh, go into some of the problems that happened at the crime scene. Um, right. All right. So, you know, this was very new DNA evidence too back then. And and even the evidence back then, you know, they were still learning some of these techniques and they were still relatively new and of course, you know, not not accredited. And although this fun fact, um eventually the LAPD crime lab does get accredited. And do you have any idea when, Eric, off the top of your head? Do you, do you know this? I, I know the answer. I'm just wondering if no, you have No, I have, I have no idea. Um, All right. Well, it's it's not till 1998 that the crime oh, wow. lab is, is accredited. It'll just take and, a couple of years. <laughs> uh-huh. And, and then in 2014, I think they got accredited under ISO. But you'll find this interesting. The crime lab is accredited, and that's the that's called the Criminalistics Laboratory. That's the question document, uh, the crime scene unit, firearms, drug analysis, serology, DNA, toxicology, trace analysis, uh, and quality assurance. Not Leighton Prince. Ah, <laughs> no. Today, their Leighton Print unit is still not accredited. They've yeah. been seeking accreditation for some time, or at least going in that direction, but no, they're not accredited, which is why when they get on the stand, there's a whole series of questions that are very different they wow. get than the sheriff's department. Yes. So, 
every single forensic unit is essentially accredited except for the latent print unit. Well, I know we went through that in Arizona, but that was a way before my time. Um, yeah. Arizona, the state lab, uh, was the second lab accredited under ASCOD lab back in the early eighties. Uh, Illinois state police was first and then ours was second. Um, and it wasn't until I want to say the early nineties. So actually this is, I think before OJ that Leighton Prince was brought underneath finally the umbrella of, um, the rest of the crime lab and then accredited along with that, and then yeah, I think I think that's similar to the the state lab here in Minnesota. It was the same thing. It used to be more of a part of the chem print division, right? And then brought brought into it was under yeah. I can't remember what division it was under. There's so many uh, bureaucratic mess <laughs> of of different divisions in 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 the government, uh, but uh, yeah, it was finally brought in underneath that now. The, the the part that sometimes in labs isn't accredited is the crime scene unit. And um, right. and that's actually pretty common is the rest of the labs accredited except for crime scene people. Even if Leighton Prince is, you know, they may not be. Um, right. So, and, you know, this kind of ties into all the, you know, some of the issues that happened as they were collecting the evidence. Yep. Okay, so, uh, so all right, so at the time, not accredited, and uh, I think, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, uh, Dennis Fung. Dennis Fung is uh, oh, yeah. sort of the head, you know, the head of this. Oh, and by the way, in the dramatization, that handshake thing, that really happened. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I mean, that really, or if you haven't seen it, um, when Dennis Fung gets off the stand after days and days and days of testimony, he goes over and starts shaking the hands. Of well, the he, he goes to the, the prosecutor's table to, and like offers to shake their hand. And they kind of look at him like, what are you doing? And then right. he just instead just turns and just starts shaking the hand of every defense attorney. Yeah. It, it was yeah. funny. Um, it's, it, it's bizarre. One of my, my coworkers just got done with a trial in, uh, in in one of the other counties here in Arizona. And evidently she said that the defense attorney kind of held the door open for her to leave the courtroom area and mm-hmm. was like, and said as she was leaving, you know, good to see you again. Because, you know, I guess the defense attorney had, you know, been in, in trials, you know, with our examiner before. And, you know, reach out his hand to shake her hand and it's this kind of awkward thing of well you know what do you do in that moment again this is totally opposite than oj oj was where this this guy went around shaking the hands and it was his kind of you know right he left the witness stand and yeah. in front of the jury went and shook everybody's hand. which was bizarre i mean even in dramatization bizarre. But, you know, even in real life, it was bizarre. It was this really awkward moment. But then it it really reminded me when I just kind of heard the story from just last week of, well, what do you do if the defense attorney holds the door or like the little gate or whatever in the the courtroom for you? And was like, hey, good to see you again. And reaches out to shake your hand. That's just. I've had that happen to you. You have? And just, yeah, and he, he shook my hand and kind of put his hand on my shoulder. It, it was just, I mean, I think the jury had just been dismissed, though, because we were breaking for lunch. Right. But I was leaving. I was done with testimony. And yeah, I had that happen. And I remembered him because he gave me the worst grilling the first time through. <laughs> so I remembered him very clearly. <laughs> and you know, that, I mean, you have met him before. And, and, you know, you may have seen him multiple times in interviews or other pre-trial stuff yeah, for another trial it is awkward though so yeah, yeah it's awkward but then yeah for for the the actual witness to instigate it all oh my god it, as someone who's you know testifies as an expert witness before oh my god i, I just i just yeah. can't believe that that actually happened <laughs> <laughs> okay all right, so so Dennis Fung is the one who's testifying predominantly about this, and and honestly, Barry Shack does 
a, a, fa- a phenomenal job of cross-examination oh and it's it is absolutely phenomenal to see to go back and look at the tapes so you can see what a great litigator barry was and probably still is today um it just tears uh, him apart just, i mean you feel he, sorry he, for he the does. guy yeah yep and you know just um you know all the things that they did that and and to be fair it's not just what they did, but it's what every practically every crime lab in the country was doing back then as well. So it, this could have happened to any uh, any crime lab yeah. too. Just people constantly didn't wear gloves at crime scenes. They, you know, the idea of cross contamination, the sensitivity of DNA, simply wasn't there. Uh, people just simply didn't think of it the way we think of it today. And you know, one of the things that they do to preserve the dignity of the bodies is to go upstairs in the bedroom and pull a sheet off, you know, off the bed and then cover the body with a sheet. And Barry takes them to task on that. Couldn't you have introduced fibers and hairs and DNA and all this? It, and, you know, he just goes after Fung. Is that isn't that a, a pretty a, you know grievous error isn't that an error isn't that poor crime scene technique yes 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 and it just you know beats him down that was yes that well was in the not, dramatization not it was it was like it seemed like an afternoon where he did this but in real life it was like i mean days days day yes. after day after i mean it, I mean, it was more than a week, though, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, he had a very long testimony, and yes, days of cross examination. It was pretty rough. And again, anyone can go and see these, you know, these videos. Oh wow! You know, again, with the lens of time and what we know today, <laughs> and proper crimes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it looks terrible, but it's what every crime lab <laughs> lab did. So, uh, yeah, okay. Um, you know, the 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 DNA is. When you just look at the DNA, and and again, it's hard to you know you, you can't you can't talk about the DNA without the possibility of contamination. But assuming there wasn't contamination, then you've got some pretty convincing DNA. You've got you know um, on OJ's socks at his home, you've got a mixture of Nicole Brown and OJ's blood. You've got drops of blood in OJ's vehicle. Uh, you've got OJ's blood and a mixture of both. Of the victims in his vehicle, yeah. You've got the bl- the bloody gloves, which had a mixture of all three people. Yes, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> and then you've got the bloody shoe print, which was the victim's blood. Um, and the gloves. Know. One was found at OJ's house, and one was yes. found at the at yes. the victim's house. Yes, and size extra large, um, isotoner, highly ex- you know expensive uh, glove, only sold at Bloomington's. Bloomingdale's, right? <laughs> Bloomingdale only sold at Bloomingdale's. Um, you know, and, and uh, a receipt of Nicole Brown buying two pairs, right? And uh, I don't know if it comes out in that or something else. It's something I I, I know from the case. Um, OJ had been complaining about because he you know he lives in the LA, so they don't need gloves. You know, if you think about the gloves, you don't need gloves in June in LA, right? Okay, <laughs> no. um, not an isotoner pair of winter gloves. But because he spent so much time in New York and commentating at games, and you know he's always on the road and he's he's on the field, you know, in Buffalo, in Cleveland, in Pittsburgh in the winter, he had mentioned to Nicole he could use a pair of really warm gloves when he's on the sidelines, you know, doing his 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 interviews. So she had bought these pair these, you know, two pairs of gloves as a Christmas gift. So, you know, to me it was one of the things that said well, I mean, obviously, but it really was one of the big things that said premeditated murder. That right, he went with gloves in June. It, yeah, exactly. It wasn't one of the things where he went there and then, in a moment of rage, you know, decided to kill. No, 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 no. If you're bringing gloves and a stocking cap uh, to her house and a knife, uh, you're going there to kill her. And to me, that it was a, another critical piece of evidence for premeditation. Because it just it wouldn't make any other sense to have these gloves with you in June in you know in Los Angeles. <laughs> I yes, um, I mean it's slightly more temperate in in LA than here is here in Phoenix, but um, 
I, I mean, I have a pair of gloves, but only because I, <laughs> I mean, geez, 12 years ago, I worked for uh, over the winter in Canada. And that was the only reason that I have gloves. And I right. don't quite know where they are right now. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> if you're going to wear, you know, gloves out like that, that's exactly it. You're, you're going there for that reason ahead of time. Um, yep. And that's even and, this explanation that sometimes comes up of, oh, he, you know, he was just kind of like stalking her and stuff and then got really pissed off because this, you know, he, he saw this dude there and right. thought that, you know, she was having, you know, this was like his, her new boyfriend or something. No, if you're going there, you know, with gloves and like you said, the, you know, uh, disguise and dark clothes you're, and, you're go- and and I, knife. you're going there to kill her and i i absolutely believe that a, a weird twist of luck the body was found too early that his whole thing to do this was he was out of town when it happened yeah. he was leaving at 11 that night to go to chicago if the body hadn't been found so quickly and able to put a good time of death, and then, of course, the Barking Dog and Ron Goldman and these other things were they able to get a perfect window, they would have just basically said at some point that night, and where was the husband? Oh, he was he was in Chicago. He, 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 well, there's his alibi. I, I honestly believe that's what this all was, and that's the timing of it. That's why this was premeditated. He had planned to basically do this, get on the thing, and then gone, and everything you know these little things that went wrong and the body being discovered so quickly you know puts a, a very you know quick window on when this had that he was still in town when this happened yeah there have been trials of the century before right there's you know there's lizzie borden uh there's the um what the, the pilot sam shepherd oh sam shepherd yeah um the uh there was the oh the, the Lindbergh, the, the Lindbergh baby exactly you know all of these have been called the trials of the century, you know, in the past, but the combination of, of, you know, all of, um, of all of these factors, like these old other trials that were huge in the media with the cable news network and with, with, uh, the length of it. I mean, this is the longest sequestered jury ever. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, this really does have that claim. Um, and, you know, if you were too young or, um, you know, don't remember this, it, it was, it was nothing like any of the news stories today. It was just, you know, exponentially larger than anything that we have today as a, you know, big news trial. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's indescribable to, to someone who didn't you know, kind of experience all that. Yeah. Yep. And and that's what I, again, I think the dramatization and the 30 for 30 special, if you didn't live it, you practically can. Uh, I think <laughs> they do such a good job yeah. of it. And, and they're so thorough. And again, the 30 for 30 for 30 is someone who's followed this case for 25 years. I kept learning new things on there. Like, oh, that's where that came from. And one of the wow. things that was always shocking was, um, Nicole uh, Brown had all of, all of these diaries and letters where you know she wrote in there he's going to kill me he beats me he does this you know I mean you you have her speaking from the grave and I think it came in through the the sister uh, through yeah. her testimony because I always thought that basically she had written these letters to her sister but no that's actually not what happened as I found in the documentary they had done a search warrant on a safety deposit box of hers and they went in to get and her will was in there and whatever else and in that safety deposit box she had put all these things which was basically if I if I am found dead <laughs> here's my will and here's who killed me right I mean, it's essentially what she even says in the thing he's going to kill me and if you find him he does this and this and it's all right there that it was clear she was basically saying, uh, this isn't a mystery if I'm found dead. Here, OJ killed me. Uh, and I, I really wasn't aware that she had taken those steps to essentially protect herself. Uh, but, uh, you know, up to that, <laughs> di- you know, up to that date, I mean, she had done redone her will just a few weeks beforehand. But, for you know, yeah. she'd been saying things like this for years ahead of yes. time. 
I mean, yes. this this wasn't like a new thing when they became estranged. This this was right. you know, a, a long history uh, of abuse and fear. Yep. And you know, and they talk in the different you know thing uh, shows that the jurors uh, they didn't really care. Uh, again, yeah. it, you know, sorry, okay, sacrificial lamb, and this is what happened. Um, but yeah, we're this is still payback, and we don't trust L.A. you know PD for this. And well, we're not we're not going to convict them. And you know, they I, in the thirty for thirty, uh, the juror, like one of the jurors at the interview, they interview I think a Hispanic woman and a, an African American woman. And, they, and if you if, if any listeners have seen it, you'll know the African American juror number eleven, maybe or eight. Her. It's she's so blunt about it. She, (laughs) you know, she's at she's basically asked, did you basically say not guilty because of Rodney King? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. LAPD have been screwing black people over forever. Yeah, this was this was payback. Yep. Uh, We don't care how much evidence there was. We didn't care. We were not going we were not going to uh, convict that man. And then now later they come back because the, the last episode of that. You know, they they go over the Vegas arrest and what happened to him in Vegas and how he gets arrested and what happened. The the fifth episode of that is fascinating because you see the aftermath of OJ and everything that happened to him. And I actually learned a lot. I didn't know half the stuff in that episode because once the OJ was done, the OJ trial was done and the civil trial, that was it. I never really heard about him again until... um, until the Vegas thing, but there's all these years of his decline and hanging out with <laughs> these gangster rappers in Florida <laughs> and making rap videos and just going to strip clubs and all these videos, <laughs> like all this stuff, and just this nonsense. So they come back to that juror and say, "Well, how do you feel about things now that you know you, he's been arrested and he did this and that?" And she basically says, and she does say, she says the word, "He's an idiot." We gave him his life back, and he wasted it. And I feel sickened by that. He is a, he's, a, he's an idiot. We gave him his life back, and he absolutely wasted it. He's a fool. And I went, well, okay. Well, that's uh, she at least has some historical perspective yeah. on, on what's happened. <laughs> that the, And she saw this as giving him a chance, and he wasted it. And I went, oh, okay. Well, that's... Uh, yeah, it's uh, chilling to hear her be so blunt about it that they just ignored this evidence. On the other hand, <laughs> you you go into the perspective and the minds of these people at that time and what was happening. Okay, well, all right, <laughs> you can see yeah. how justice was perverted. Well, and I've, or or if you will, delayed justice was well, delayed. Yeah, I've heard some people speculate as to whether or not he's going to admit to things. Um. As he becomes eligible for parole here in the next year or two, um, right? And yeah, that's that's an interesting thought to consider. But um, um, I, I think at this point, he, yeah, basically he's just kind of done. You know, his life's you know over, and and uh, despite the uh, the trial verdict, uh, everybody knows what happened um you know what he did and um uh, you know like you said delayed but you know he's he's now serving the time <laughs> uh yeah and uh, and probably will for quite a while now yeah and probably received a harsher sentence than <laughs> had it been anyone else oh and yeah without the history of this and you know several people in the video even comment on that and they go yeah no they they <laughs> It might have been payback by the jurors back then for Rodney King. Well, this was the criminal justice system's payback for him getting off the first <laughs> right. time. Absolute, war, like, yeah, absolute max sentence for, for, I mean, yes. Well, and, a new and crime, charge but... after charge tacked on. I mean, all these charges that get tacked on, like they talked about in the Stephen Avery thing, you know, stacking the deck of, we're going to charge you with all of these things right. and then see what sticks. And well, everything stuck, and they each, and the maximum sentences <laughs> handed out on them. Yeah, and, and and because they, I mean, everybody knew that hey, this is our basically our chance to get him now. So while it was you know payback for Rodney King before, now this new trial in Nevada is basically payback for 
for for not getting him the first time. Um, yeah. So it, and some and some of Alice Maceo's crew actually testified in that because there you know a lot of latent work that right. was done too. So I remember them talking to them about that. <laughs> They're like, uh, everyone was geared up for again the trial of the century again, but it really wasn't. No, uh, it went went fairly smoothly. And I think, well, not, he was also out of money and couldn't afford the same <laughs> dream team that he had the first time right. around. You know, well, but and it, the, you know, even with the first time around, you know, I think most of those guys did it just to get the fame instead of just the money. Um, because they knew how big it was going to be, but they still got paid. Oh yeah, I think it was. I think it was said fifty thousand a day. Oh my! Is that right? Fifty thousand. I'll take that. Is that right? Is that it? Fifty thousand a day. What? Uh, that seems that seems too high. Maybe it's fifty thousand. You know, if if they need if they need a latent print expert, uh, if they need an eagle eye, you know, ten grand a day. I'll I'll take it. I'll take that. <laughs> Just Maybe count prices. Maybe it was fifty thousand a day. That actually For that each does one sound of them? right because no, 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 oh, altogether. Total, okay. That's his <sighs> legal fees amounted to about fifty thousand a day, and I guess that would make sense if you had all those attorneys and their travel and Barry Shack and Peter Newell well, flying from yeah. in Brooklyn, and you've got uh, a couple of other guys, and then um, F. Lee Bailey flying. You yeah. have all these people flying in. You know, they don't live there, and. You know, you have their expenses. Yeah, it, maybe it was. Whew. It was. It was something astronomical, and you go, and this went on for nine months. All right. Yeah. Any, anything else you want to uh, to cover here before we uh, we close out, OJ? Not that we might not come back to it at some point, like we did with Stephen Avery, but uh, at least for this round. Well, um, I guess two quick things. Sure. One of the things that I actually learned later, and it was. It, it never came out that I saw anywhere it was actually how they look for the blood. Um, there's a very well-known fingerprint examiner by the name of Dusty Clark. And Dusty yeah. Clark uh, had showed me a video of you know, them looking for, for blood on O.J.'s socks and how they found it uh, because O.J.'s socks were dark. So, you know, they wanted oh, okay. to show these blood stains on there. And this was one of the first uses of infrared photography because uh, the, the socks will show up essentially grayish light colored and then the blood stains will show up dark on there so i remember dusty showing me that and that was a pretty cool video actually i think i have that clip still somewhere the the search and finding the blood stains on on the socks and i thought that was pretty interesting and um you know when you you look at all the dna evidence in that case hairs and fibers as well we didn't talk about that very much but there is a, a stocking cap and so there were some hairs and fibers associated right as well the, the bloody shoe print which to me is really the smoking gun but unfortunately not able to you know be used at the criminal trial and then you know his own statements and you know all these other things that have come to <laughs> light and chase. all, all the, the chase, right? Yeah, exactly. The suspicious chase behavior, and, and just everything else. I mean, to me, you know, there really isn't any any doubt. But when you look at the parallels between that case and the Stephen Avery case, because it was this case that they developed the EDTA testing, because it was here that they felt, right. well, okay, so Furman plants the blood on the gloves. The FBI gets called in for that one, too, because then they get asked, well, how can we tell if it was planted or not? Well, when – and this is crazy um, – when they took his blood, remember, they would not have had his blood at the crime scene right. because they don't have OJ's blood. They don't have it till three days later when they bring him in for um, um, in, an interview. And so when he gets back from his Chicago trip, they, they bring him down to the station. They take his blood at that point. Now, here – and this is all documented. This is what they did. They then take that blood from the the, the police station where he has the interview, and the, the, the cop runs the blood over to the crime scene to give to the criminalist over there, a fung, presumably. So they actually and, – and Barry Sheck seizes upon this. Huh. Is this standard procedure to take – the person's blood from there to in your career how often have you ever taken blood and then brought it back to the crime scene of the person that you know just yeah you just may have been involved it just doesn't never never 
Never in my career. But you did it in this case. Yep. I did. Why? I, I, I don't know. I, I just did. I just, they, they need, why not take it to the crime lab? Why not drop it off at the crime? I, I don't know. I, I didn't. So you have him testifying that he takes the blood to the scene while they're still working the scene. Uh, okay. So, you know, now the presumption that they could have placed some blood. And there's, there's a few other things where blood apparently shows up later. It wasn't in the original photo, right. but now they see a drop, which just reminded me again of the keys. You don't see it in this photo, but yep. a couple days later, yeah. oh, now there's a drop on the, on the gate, you know? Right. And right. so they want to test. They want to test these drops of blood for EDTA, and that's when the FBI developed their EDTA method, which you know we talked about in the Stephen Avery thing, uh, and you know didn't detect EDTA in it. Although they were able to find a, a defense witness who, if I remember correctly, I think he said that the detection limit was so low. It's, you know, you wouldn't be able to detect it, so it's there. So in my opinion, you really can't say it could have come from the tube. And, you know, and the FBI guy came in and said, you know, obviously, no, we would have been able to detect it if it was present. So there's something about that. I think defense was able to find a, an expert witness who did testify, if I recall correctly, that, no, it could have come from those tubes. The method wasn't sensitive enough to detect it if it was there. Well, and in the but, end, though, it didn't really matter because the the defense story, they didn't have to pick one story. They just had to keep throwing ideas out there. Yes. And one of the other ideas didn't really matter for EDTA because they were saying, well, Mark Furman could have just found one of the gloves, both gloves at the crime scene, picked up one of them, smeared it around in all the blood and then you know taking it back to to oj's house um, but he would have had to put oj's blood on it that's that's right. what's missing from because there is a mixture of oj nicole um uh and uh ron on the gloves so if, but if you know the idea you know, for the jury it didn't really matter which story they heard. They never got right. back to the, well, oh, no, no, hold on. You know, you would have had to find OJ's blood too. You know, right. if they didn't believe the whole EDTA blood tube thing three days later, then they could have just, well, okay, then, you know, this racist guy just, you know, did all this stuff. Um, right. There was no one there kind of like, hey, you know, you know they would have had to have done this too. You know, because there was just nine months of evidence with so much stuff. It all, yeah. all they had to do was just throw out stuff. And it didn't really matter which thing convinced a specific juror not to believe it. It, it was just, you know, eventually one of these things is going to stick with that juror. And one of these things, maybe a different thing with that juror. And then we're good. Yeah. And if anyone's wondering, you know, why would OJ's blood be on this stuff or at the scene? Well, Presumably, he was seen when they brought him down to the station. He had a cut on his finger. Yeah. I think it was his middle finger. And, you know, he was asked about it. And he, his story kept changing. You know, he said, oh, he cut it when he was in Chicago on a glass. And then he said, and then at some point he said, oh, he cut it before he left on this. And then he told someone else he cut it on that. There was a whole trail of blood at uh, OJ's house. There was blood in the driveway, blood in the foyer, blood, you know, just a dry... <laughs> again follow the bloody trail yeah. just all this evidence that no this was a fresh wound a knife cut it was probably during the struggle a lot of people you know speculate that it probably happened when he was struggling with ron goldman since there really was a struggle nicole went down pretty quickly but there was a struggle with ron so he may have cut himself at that point and then you know he is bleeding in his own car he's bleeding in his driveway he's bleeding you know, in in his home, I I don't know. All all seems pretty convincing to me, but it has this again all the ring of the Stephen Avery that choices were made by LAPD. You know what to do with evidence that were you know, in retrospect look look poor. Bringing the evidence there, I think even one of the cops uh, talked about how he took evidence home overnight in the trunk. So yeah. he right in his trunk. And he went to his house, and then he comes back and then brings it to the station or something the next day. So, I mean, that kind of stuff. It just They were just poor choices that cast this doubt. But like we talked about earlier, I don't think it, I don't think it mattered. When you really talk to the, you 
when you hear the jurors and listen to their stories and their view, I, I it to me it was Mark Furman's testimony, pleading the fifth to the critical question in the backdrop of L.A. racism Rodney and everything King, going yeah. on. No, it it didn't matter if the glove fit or not. It didn't matter if the DNA evidence was there. It didn't matter if Nicole was. It do, do, didn't matter. None of it all mattered at that point. The the game is rigged. It's 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 done. It's done. Right. All right. Well, um, uh, let's kind of wrap this one up. Uh, but uh, you know, if uh, we, we may choose to come back and revisit OJ at some point in time. Um, yeah. Uh, or if you have questions yeah. or comments or things or stories that you know about it or things that you've read or want to discuss, uh, yeah, please. Uh, there's so much more. Yeah, obviously we've left out. Right. There's but like, like we said, there's no fingerprints, but there's so much other stuff that we we could have gone into. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear about your stories of where you were, or uh, for the the Bronco chase, or for the verdict, or. Um, you know, other stories you've heard about the the forensics involved in this case because I yeah. mean, this really or if we got something wrong or if you have <laughs> exactly. a different theory or um, I mean this really is a like you said a watershed moment in um, in forensics uh, in the world really uh, yeah it, it it changed so much of how we operate in crime labs uh, and is still really felt today in um, uh, you know, in some of the things we do for accreditation or for uh, just in the day-to-day workings of the procedures in preparation for what questions we may be asked in trial. Uh, yeah. It's it's such a major thing for all that. So please let us know, uh, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, listen to us every week on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Music on this podcast, courtesy of Blue Wave Theory, an instrumental surf rock band from New Jersey. If you're in the area, check out Blue Wave Theory at the Asbury Park Surf Music Fest in Asbury Park, New Jersey on August 27th.